Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Epic Human Podcast, the long-form podcast featuring risk-takers and high-performers from all walks of life, including founders, venture investors, innovators, technologists, artists, athletes, and more. I'm your host, Joe Blair, and thank you so much for listening today. Today's episode features Ruben Harris. Ruben is the CEO of Career Karma, a marketplace connecting job training programs and qualified applicants. Ruben is also the co-host of the Breaking Into Startups podcast, the podcast featuring inspiring stories of people who broke into tech from non-traditional backgrounds. In this episode, Ruben and I discuss the future of education and how to address the massive skills gap that exists both in the U.S. and around the world. We also go deep into Ruben's incredible past, starting with his passion for music as an accomplished cellist at a very young age, and how he transitioned into finance, and then the miraculous way he hustled his way into technology and into Silicon Valley. Ruben is an incredibly humble and honest person, especially as he shares his mistakes, successes, and tangible advice for others finding their own way. You can find Ruben on Twitter at Ruben Harris and Career Karma on Twitter at Career underscore Karma. Today's episode is brought to you by SBZ Legal, a boutique law firm based out of Oakland, California, that specializes in working with early stage startups. As I've witnessed firsthand as an investor, one of the most important decisions you can make as an entrepreneur is choosing the right legal partner. One one of the most common assumptions is that a good lawyer is really expensive, and so entrepreneurs will either DIY their legal needs or ends up paying thousands of dollars per hour for an attorney's time. But it doesn't have to be that way. SPZ Legal specializes in working with early stage startups. The firm was founded by three Berkeley alumni who happen to be amazingly genuine and down-to-earth people uh, who I really enjoy. Uh, and, and they founded the company on, with the idea that a business can be a tool for positive change. They focus on helping impact-driven organizations with forming their business, fundraising, hiring, closing deals with customers, and protecting their intellectual property. Not only does SPZ take pride in doing high-quality work, they're also quite transparent about their pricing, uh, So, and they don't charge an arm and a leg, which is important when you're an early-stage startup. You can learn more about SPZ at spzlegal.com, or you can contact them at info at spzlegal.com. If you'd like to drop by and say hello, their address is 1939 Harrison Street, Suite 610, Oakland, California, zip code, nine four six one two i am legally required to say that this may be considered attorney advertising uh so i hope you enjoy today's episode uh so without further ado please welcome an epic human reuben harris Okay, and we're live with Ruben Harris, CEO and founder of Career Karma and co-host of Breaking Into Startups. Uh, Ruben, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, we actually met at uh, a beautiful event mm-hmm. uh, called the Near Future Summit in mm-hmm. sunny San Diego, um, and which is created and, and produced by the, the great Zen Joaquin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Obvious uh, is a firm sponsor at the event, and you were actually on stage, and that's how we originally connected. Um, but then we, we actually really had a longer conversation in which we got back to the Bay Area. Um, and I was intrigued by some of your perspectives on education, uh, and, uh, and your story was just so compelling, I, I knew I had to have you on the podcast. So appreciate you being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. That was definitely one of the, the best uh, events I've ever been to, and I'm not just saying that. Um, and, and thank you for organizing that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I had almost nothing to do with it, but uh, but yeah, all the credit goes to the near future team. 
so let's talk uh, first about Career Karma. Um, would love to hear a little bit about like the founding insight of the company and, and how you came up with the idea. Yeah. So uh, very simply, Career Karma is a marketplace that matches people to job training programs, starting with coding boot camps. So as an individual, um, when you download the app, you take a quiz and we match you with the best coding boot camp for you. Um, and then we put you into a group of people like you that have done it before um, that can teach you how to get through the preparation process to pass the exams for a boot camp. Um, we call that process uh, the 21-day challenge, which is a three-week process. During the first seven days, there's a fast-track process that you go through and a common app that you will click that will get you accepted into your top schools um, conditionally with, through a qualitative interview. And then over another 14 days, you're going to get ready technically and schools apply to you versus you apply to the schools. On the flip side, um, on the other side of the marketplace, we've also created a login for schools where they've shared all of their initial prerequisites for a qualitative interview so that we can essentially prepare people through software beforehand. And then once people submit their fast track profiles after getting approved, then the schools can make different offers and know where different people are in different stages of their journey in real time so that they're not, they can only spend time talking to people that they actually want to talk to versus spending money on Google and Facebook ads um, and converting at a very low rate um, with people that are still not prepared and they just viewed an advertisement. Um, so that's, that's a, very simply what we're doing. Um, as a software matching people to schools and schools to people. Um, and the fundamental insight that we've seen um, because my co-founders did Hack Reaction App Academy historically is that um, the bootcamp model is rapidly expanding across skill sets. Mm -hmm. And the primary driver of everything is something called an income share agreement. Um, every week we get a new bootcamp that has historically had the ISA option or recently added it to their offerings asking to be part of the Career Karma Pro flat platform every week. And when we were at Y Combinator, because we just finished Y Combinator, um, something that we brought up is that income share agreements are spreading to other things like sales, marketing, data science, and um, people are wanting to include those career paths and career karma as well. Um, while consolidation is happening, so I'm not sure if you saw, um, General Assembly got acquired for $400 million. Um, Trilogy got acquired for $750 million. Some boot camps like Dev Bootcamp shut down. Um, Iron Yard shut down. Um, you know, entrepreneurs are learning what works and what doesn't work. And you're starting to see new powerful models um, that are introducing part-time, full-time, self-paced options. And even collaborations with colleges um, that are offering accreditation and, and all kinds of things like that. So I think to some to put a bow on it, what we've seen is that um, now student loans are $1.6 trillion. Um, there are 44 million Americans that are working age without college degrees that aren't making a living wage. Um, and education is recognizing that it has to change. And companies are recognizing that they're tapping out of our current supply of talent and they're going to have to start building talent. And that whole process is fragmented. So we decided to take a software approach to focus on um, this on developing people through boot camps. Um, and once we get it right for software engineering, we'll expand to every other skill set and create the world's most powerful staffing firm. Wow. Yeah. It's a bold vision. And uh, can you tell me just uh, about how the Breaking Into Startups podcast fits into that? Yeah. So uh, we moved to the Bay Area five years ago um, and we didn't know anybody. 
Um, and what we realized as we were discovering these different training programs is that the majority of people in boot camps have bachelor's degrees. Over 70% of them have bachelor's degrees. Um, and the reason why I bring that up related to the podcast is because most people don't know that boot camps exist, right? Um, and so the way to make people know that something exists is you need media, right? If you look at how for-profit education started, or even just college in general, uh, usually like 20% of their, their budget goes towards marketing. Um, a good example is um, Southern New Hampshire University. They have over 135,000 students on it. Um, online, 90 plus percent of them online. And a billion dollar budget, 20% of it goes towards marketing. Um, same type of thing with all the other for-profit universities like um, University of Phoenix and all these other things that exist. Um, and so whether it's private or public, getting the word out about your program is a very big deal because at the end of the day, every school is marketing the same thing. You get a degree, you get a job. Um, we've seen that that works with some schools, that doesn't work with others. But what's nice about an income share agreement is that they, um, they align the outcomes. And so what we realize is that with the podcast, um, most people outside of tech don't read tech news. And if tech is taking over every industry, then we needed to make people aware of what was happening, specifically those 44 million people that listen to the radio or television and things like that. And so um, rather than featuring CEOs and VCs on a podcast, we decided to interview um, people that were just like them, that were older or younger or mothers or fathers or high school dropouts or college dropouts that figured out how to break into tech so that they wouldn't just be inspired by the story, but we also gave them tactical action items that they could follow with every episode and the direct contact information for the individual so that they they knew what they needed to do for the next step. Um, so um, I, I, I was a musician before and I used to work in radio. Um, the majority of our population still listens to radio and watches television. If um, electric cars are going to be a very big deal and driverless cars are going to be a very big deal and Bluetooth is going to be important, we all have smartphones in our pocket. Podcasts are a very nascent industry, mm -hmm. but they're going to become the dominant form of audio consumption, whether through a car or through a smart home device like a Google Voice or Alexa. Um, and so, you know, in 2016, we decided to uh, create a platform that doesn't just empower our voice, but helps other people elevate their own voices. So anytime we help someone get a job, we can feature their story on the podcast so that other people can have a playbook about how to get there. So that's, that's how yeah. it all came together. And some of this was derived from uh, Peter Steele's mm -hmm. uh, CS notes. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. can, can you just talk about uh, yeah. that distribution strategy? I mean, yeah. I mean that, that, that insight gained from, from that uh, mm -hmm. source. Yeah. So when I, um, when I moved to the Bay Area, when I was still in Atlanta, Georgia, a guy named Balaji Srinivasan, who was at Andreessen, um, who became the CTO of Coinbase and started several companies, he encouraged me to read um, the CS183 notes that eventually turned into Zero to One, mm -hmm. uh, which is a, a popular book by Peter Thiel and Blake Masters. And chapter nine is focused on distribution, where you know, we're in Silicon Valley, <clears throat> and when you think about anything related to tech, um, there's a huge focus on engineers and building things, mm -hmm. which I think is absolutely important. But if you don't have, if you if you build the best tool in the world that solves a problem, but nobody knows that it exists, you haven't solved the problem. 
So same thing with the boot camps. And so what we realize is that my um, distribution is something that's often overlooked and sometimes even um, discussed in a derogatory way. Like if you right. say, oh, you're non-technical versus technical. Right. 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 It's like in Silicon Valley, sometimes I could actually see be seen as like you're a lesser person. But if you see the big enterprise companies like Zoom or Slack, and I, I would even argue even beyond meat, right? You had to figure out how to get, um, you know, this company that you all invested to and that had is changing the way protein works to be distributed and be viewed as something that is a is a viable alternative that tastes good and it's sold in the meat department. Right. Right. And so that's that's distribution. Right. And so what I realized early on is that um, before we started a company, before we started Career Karma, um, we needed to master distribution um, and we had to have a diversity of skill sets on the team. So my co-founders, they focus on becoming software engineers and I was going to focus on the on the distribution side. And since I had a lot of experience, not just in radio, um, but also working with celebrities through my work in music um, in Atlanta. Um, I knew that that was going to be where I focused on. So that's that's where that insight came from. Yeah, that I, I love that insight. Um, and I'm, I'm a big believer in that strategy. In fact, that's uh, partially why I started this podcast is because I feel like VCs suffer the same kind of dilemma um, or, 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 you know, a lot of them suffer the same illusion where they're like, well, we invested in a great company and everyone probably knows about that. Um, I mean, we tweet about it, but... But in reality, there are so many VC firms, and it's hard to pay attention to all of them. And it's mm-hmm. it's uh, you know especially if you're not you know A16Z or Sequoia or Benchmark or some of the brand name firms, it's hard to get your your portfolio companies out there and whatnot. And so, I mean, that was one of the thoughts about this podcast as well. So I, th- I think it's a brilliant insight, and I think we're going to see this more and more. In fact, just in the past two or three years, I've seen more startups um, with uh, with podcasting strategies, um, and I think it. You know, at, at first glance, I think people might see that and say like, oh, well, that's that's a huge investment of time and resources. But I think it's actually a brilliant strategy for lowering your lowering your customer acquisition cost, creating like people who actually love your company, love your and and as we know, podcasts, it's, it's not just about the company behind it or, or the firm behind it or whatever. It's it's about fulfilling. It's about developing an authentic relationship with an individual or multiple yep. individuals. Yep. Um, so, and I think uh, people don't like being marketed to. Yep. They like things that are uh, functionally useful for them, yep. and they like connecting with people on you know a personal basis. And I think yep. podcasts are a brilliant way to, yeah. to do to do that. So, you brought up a few a few firms. I mean, like Andreessen has a podcast. They're based off a CAA model. Yeah. Um, when when we when we when we first moved out here. Um, you know, personal brand has been key throughout my entire life, even yeah. since the the MySpace days. Like mm-hmm. even throwing parties with with like Jermaine Dupree when I was in Atlanta. Like we really leveraged MySpace and um, these friend groups to do things. And uh, when I moved to uh, before I got into investment banking, even I wrote a blog um, on Posturist before it was acquired by Twitter mm-hmm. about what I was going to do and how I was going to get into investment banking without going to an Ivy League school and having a low GPA. After being a posturist in Blogspot um, and moving to the Bay Area, I actually blogged on Medium for the breaking of the startups thing, mm-hmm. right? And then Medium, that, that blew up. And then after 
Um, we did that. We realized that things were shifting. Then everybody started doing these medium platforms. We went to podcast. Now what we're seeing actually is um, video. Yeah. Um, so that's why we're doubling down pretty hard on video mm-hmm. and why every single person in Career Karma, we encourage them to learn how to tweet, to establish their own voice. We teach them how to blog because we have our own blog. Um, and we encourage them to document their story in a variety of different ways and we give them those resources. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so, so you know, I've, I've listened to a few of your episodes um, uh, of Breaking Into Startups and, and you said... I know each individual gives some advice, um, but what what are a few kind of tips and tricks um, that people from disadvantaged backgrounds or or people who you know maybe they've uh, they've ascended that that first hill that that you, you t- you've talked about before, uh, and they look out and they say, hey, I think I'm on the wrong hill, right? So maybe they're later in their career, uh, and they're thinking like, how do I? I'm interested in tech generally, uh, but what are some of those like the tips and tricks and life hacks if you could kind of summarize some of the top recurring ones? I think the three most important things that you want to focus on before you do something is um, why you want to do it. I'm like, so why do you want to do X skill set? Um, once you decide, can you commit to it for at least 12 months? Um, and then have you prepared mentally and emotion and emotionally for the moments when you will doubt yourself, right? Because um, we've entered into a world of um, the end of occupational identity and embracing lifelong learning where if, if you come from an environment where everything was structured and everything was like factory-like um, and you're thrown into a world where there's less structure and things are kind of like made up um, on the fly, and you're wearing multiple hats. That can that chaotic environment can be very, um, very shocking to people, um, to the point where they just have paralysis. Um, I think if you can learn how to be comfortable with chaos and comfortable with change, and you recognize that changes lead to solutions that lead to problems, well, changes lead to solutions that lead to problems. That lead to more changes. Changes lead to solutions, leads to problems, that lead to more changes, that leads to more solutions. That blah, more blah, problems. Blah. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> so it just keeps on. going. There, so it goes. Yeah. There's, there's no, there is no end. <laughs> right. Right. So, like, if you ask most people, what do you want to do in life? I would say, I would argue the majority of people would say, I want to make a lot of money. But money's not an end, it's a means towards things. So it's like, so then I encourage you, okay, so. Let's say you have a lot of money. Like, what do you want to do? Okay. You want to take care of your family. You want to do this. You want to be able to travel. Okay. So how much money is that? Okay. So now that you have that, like, so did you really need a lot of money or you only needed like this much money? Right. So now that you can do all the things, then what would you do if you had to work? Like, so I actually think that like thinking about these fundamental things are super important, which is why I've been listening a lot to um, Naval lately, because he talks a lot about these deeper things about what people really want and a lot of people just want to be happy a lot of people want to be free um there's a great quote that he brought up that says um um desire is a contract to be unhappy until you get what you want right (laughs) and i think happiness is a is a it's an emotional equation that is actually wrote in that first breaking the stars blog post i talked about managing your psychology there and the happiness equation is um wanting what you have divided by having what you want. 
So it's gratitude divided by gratification. If you have too much desire, which is the denominator, then the fraction gets smaller. But the quickest way to happiness is gratitude, right? So I try to do, whenever I have a CEO kickoff in career comment, I'm talking to people day one that don't even know what code is. I, I try to get them mentally prepared to, to focus on like what they're grateful for, what they want to do, why they want to do it. Can't focus on commitment, things like that. Um, and just re really focus on psychology. And I think that's one of the big things that's actually missing in, in tech is we, we use psychology to addict people to apps, which I think can be good if it's like the right habits that we're developing. Right. But for the most part, we're addicting people to apps to click on ads to make money. And I think that the money, making money is important. Mm. So we have to, but I think we can get more creative with our business models. So, wow. Um, and, and let me ask you this, just, just in terms of, uh, you're very out there personally, right? And with the podcast and you said you're encouraging your folks to have a voice and whatnot. How do you think about that balanced with the, like, and this is just for the general population, but the, the idea of that and that and exposing your personality and being vulnerable with like the need for privacy uh, or, you know, persons, individuals need for privacy or, or kind of personal space, um, how do you, or, or, or the risk that some people see of, of putting themselves out there. What do you, how do you think about that balance um, for you and, and maybe as you advise other people? Yeah, I think that like we live in a world where I would argue nothing is private. Like people are like watching everything that you do. So it's either shape your narrative or have someone else shape it for you, right? So like you don't want to put everything out there about who you are and what you're doing, but you want to drop what you want people to know, right? And if you want to keep a separate Finsta or a separate Twitter account for your personal business, do that but I definitely highly encourage people to have their own personal brand created because pretend that you are the best engineer the best at whatever you do if you have the perfect grades went the perfect school perfect college perfect whatever there's nothing that differentiates you from other people if everybody is valedictorian or if everybody is the top of their their med school right what differentiates you is these qualitative elements about who you are, right? If you think about automation that has existed since the beginning of time, as that continues to accelerate, anything that can be done that by a robot will be done by a robot. And what will separate you from everyone else is these like creative elements. And most people struggle with creativity. And the only way to rise within an organization or start your own thing is by being creative. As a CEO, I am doing different jobs that I can get to the point where I can delegate it to somebody to give myself time to be creative and think about new things to take the company to the next level, right? But I will do those things that are repetitive until that's like turned into a process and then, you know, the company is running on its own, right? Because in the beginning, the founders are building the product. In the future, the company is building the product, right? But there's always some form of, some part of your company that's still in startup mode, right? So we're always going to be writing code and talking to users. Um, so going back to, to the personal brand, I think that like, um, let's see that, yeah, write your story, have somebody write it about you, program or be programmed, 
um, and be proactive. And and I think too many people have a um, a woe is me mindset. Um, and there are some some levels to privilege and, and things like that that exist in the world. But I think that like if we get people to be strong mentally, um, and you're a great card player, you can win no matter what cards are are dealt to you. Mm. Wow, I love that. So so many gems in there. Um, I guess what what jumps out to me is uh, this idea of saving time and making time for creativity mm-hmm. and and creativity as a skill mm-hmm. like a lot of people think about creativity as like oh you either have it or you don't mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and and I, another quote i love is uh from uh, uh terry cruz his uh, interview with tim ferris he said mm-hmm. creativity is the opposite of competition mm-hmm. and i think that wow i like that one a yeah lot. i think i think that actually speaks to what you're That's just amazing. talking about right because it's like I, I think you, you know what you said about people look a lot look very similar on LinkedIn, right? If they went to the same schools or they have the same job or things like that, um, and but but how you can really differentiate yourself is having an authentic voice. And Naval talks about this too, mm-hmm. right? Is like how do you build your authentic brand? Um, I mean, and- I, I love that creativity is the opposite of competition because going back to the Peter Thiel thing, another thing that they have in the CS one eight three notes is competition is for losers. Right. <laughs> right. And so like even with what we're doing with career karma like I would argue there's like nobody that's doing what we're doing like there's there's a few people that are like in similar things to what we're doing but like you pick a massive space like food and see all these things that are happening and then like I'm gonna create this plant food that tastes good or whatever like just whatever whatever it is like you're gonna find this niche that is in a big space that gives you the ability to run without competing and establish escape velocity until you become the monopoly. And then you can expand on to all the other adjacent spaces if you wanted to. Um, and I, I really like that creativity is the opposite of competition. I'm yeah. definitely tweeting that. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a great, it's a great <laughs> podcast too. Um, yeah. to listen to. um let, let's, let's talk a little bit about, um, just just super long term like what does the future of education look like right mm-hmm. how does career karma play a role in that um, and and what will this what will this what will education look like for our kids and our grandkids do you think it's a tough question it's a tough question um I think that um, if you think about massive open online courses and the fact of like online education introducing itself um, to you, empowering colleges to launch online courses, I think it's a it's a big breakthrough because now anyone in any location with Khan, like access to Khan Academy or YouTube can access um, things that can get them skills to get a job. I think that um, the problem with online education is that... Um, over the last seven years, there's been over 100 million learners with MOOCs um, and with 5 to 15% completion rates. So, you know, accountability is one thing. I think historically, we have overemphasized the importance of a certificate and people have optimized for a certificate or a test um, and not a focus on like what you can do with other people, right? Because 
nothing gets done without other people. Like there's no such thing as a self-made person. Right? We get things done in teams. And I also think that we've had an overemphasis on A players, like hiring the best talent when what's actually more important is actually chemistry. Right? Mm. Like if you have the best players on a team but they don't work well together, it's not gonna work. Right. So Moneyball strategies right, are better. Like the Oakland A's where you find all these different people from different backgrounds together, put them together, um, surround them around a, a certain goal with the right coaching, right? Because I think coaching is a is something that's missing. So like our career centers haven't been competent in colleges historically. Um, so like figuring out how to, how to blend all, all those things, I think what the future is, if I was going to put it in one word, is guided pathways. Mm. And so... When I think about guided pathways, whether it's an online course or an offline course, um, whether it's training provided by a company um, or something that's self-directed, an individual could choose any path that they want to follow and they will be able to find the training program for them. People that have that skill set that went through that training program, people that are currently in that training program and people that are getting ready for it and how and they have insight on how to get ready that's essentially why we built career commerce to build that guided pathway for anyone so that we can train people at scale mm. um and it's going to be as a blend of the education and workforce in the in the company world because our current education system can't keep up with the pace of technology and companies aren't communicating well with the school and so we got to figure out how to do this hybrid model and i think we're going to see more collaborations like what trilogy is doing with the colleges or mm -hmm. thankful is doing with colleges what um flatiron is doing with yale what full stack is doing with colleges um i don't think that colleges are going to completely go away but i do agree with what clay christensen is saying around how I, I wouldn't say this is the exact stat, but he's saying like half of the colleges are going to go away in the next five to 10 years because of the way that they've been operating. Um, we're going to see a tipping point with student loans um, where I think income share agreements are going to be the big driver to change that. Mm -hmm. Where um, if you don't have an income share agreement at your school, then you, the signal that you're sending to students is that you don't care about their outcomes. Maybe you should explain the income sharing agreement, how yeah. that works. Yeah. So an income sharing agreement essentially is a promise to an individual that says, I believe in you and I believe what I know how to teach. So I promise I'm going to get you a job above a certain salary. And if you don't get a job, you don't have to pay me anything. If you do get a job, you agree to pay me a percentage of your salary up to a cap. And then we're done. So let's say the, the four main pieces of an income share agreement are a guaranteed minimum income um, a duration of time usually one to three years if it's a boot camp a little longer if it's a college um, a cap which is the most that you would ever pay and a um, and a percentage of your salary so I think so. I said yeah mm -hmm. so it's, it's uh, yeah it's the minimum income percentage of your salary a cap and a duration of time right. um, and so what's interesting about them is that Let's say that you get a job straight out of a boot camp, making a hundred thousand, but you get laid off in your first month, or your mom got sick. You actually don't make payments if you quit your job. 
or you get kicked out of your job. You're only paying once you're in a job and you can comfortably pay it. There's no interest. It doesn't accrue to principal. Let's say you don't get a job in five years. A lot of times it, it completely expires and goes away. So it, it completely aligns incentives. So like if you think about um, the best way to address the student loan problem is actually not to do a bailout, in my opinion. I think like creating a bailout actually creates more problem because like the money got to come from somewhere. Mm. Um, and it, like it just, it, it, it gets, it's a slippery slope. Um, I love what Robert Smith did with student loans for Morehouse. Like, but we could use that example where he's he paid um, forty million dollars for four hundred students. Oh right, I saw for that for their student loans. Right. right. So technically, they were in Morehouse for like four years. Amazing, amazing work. But if you get four hundred students to get jobs as software engineers, making an average of one hundred thousand dollars, and they have an ISA of thirty thousand dollars. They've collectively made forty million dollars hmm. in a year, uh-huh. right? And they've paid off—I forget what that number is—but like, I think it's twelve million dollars using the thirty thousand dollar ISA. So they've collectively earned twenty-eight million. Wow! Right? That's and if you, yeah, it's a big difference. So like, if you if you train a hundred thousand engineers, which isn't a lot, we talked about Southern New Hampshire numbers, right? they collectively make a trillion dollars. You see what I'm saying? So like, rather than like... Scales. Yeah, rather than making a big bailout, what you can actually do is encourage people to launch more boot camps and make income sharing games more popular. Mm. Like if you think about, um, if you have 30,000 students going through a school, let's think about the school's money that they're making. They have to make a little over $30,000 to reach a billion in revenue, uh, 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 thirty thousand students with a thirty thousand dollar ISA to make a billion in revenue, right? So even if you launch a thousand schools with forty thousand students, that's still less than the forty four million people that are working age population that are making a living wage, and that's like a thousand multi billion dollar organizations. In yeah. the U.S., that really scales. <laughs> yeah. that, I yeah. never thought about that. Wow, it's a big. And even if you look at the current people enrolled in trade schools every year, because a boot camp is essentially modern, modern day trade school. Yeah. Um, there's 16 million Americans that are enrolled in, in trade schools every year. Mm-hmm. So I think the future of education is a is a um, a focus accelerated form of learning, um, where um, people have a guided pathway. Um, they choose what they want to do, and they're, people are always visiting different schools during their lifetime. They're working at different companies in their lifetime. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot of the general courses that are introduced to us in college earlier in life, like up until high school age. Um, and then maybe after high, once you get to high school age, then you're going to start doing apprenticeships. And I think apprenticeships today are where boot camps were in 2012 where only a few of them are doing it but a lot of the people will be doing them later um, and my unpopular opinion is that you know going to the Peter Thiel question about like what do you believe that very few other people agree with you on um, I think boot camps are the only way to address our skill gap um, and I also think that if you take a global perspective the cost of education is going to drive down to zero and the value of the the value goes towards the network. 
that you're going to be a part of. Mm-hmm. And in a world of, of zeros and ones, what really matters is relationships. Yeah. I love this idea of blending the educational system and the work system and, mm-hmm. and how that could be a lot more seamless. Um, and I'm also intrigued by this idea of uh, having many careers over the over your life mm-hmm. uh, of your lifetime and i think the way people think about it today is like okay i go to college i get my degree and then hopefully i can somehow shift into different careers over time through happenstance or, or whatnot and oftentimes that's really tough but to me the idea of graduating from high school maybe i'm taking some of these like general ed type of courses like in high school graduating from high school go for like a year to some sort of camp boot camp or whatnot maybe it's for software development maybe it's for something totally different maybe mm-hmm. it's for you know marketing maybe it's for mm-hmm. business development maybe it's for sales mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um doing that for a few years mm-hmm. and then saying oh i actually want to do something else and going to a different boot exactly. camp and whatnot and to me that 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 creates a a workforce that's a lot more adaptable mm-hmm. it creates people who uh you know can actually find through iterating find their life's path yep um and I mean, what's the biggest source of unhappiness in, you know, in the world? It's, it's people going to a job they hate every day exactly. and, and, feel, and feeling like they're getting trapped. And, and oftentimes it's based on decisions you made when you were a teenager, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which is... Or what you were told or what you saw other people doing. Right. I, like, I like what you're touching on because like, especially as like, I'll just, maybe this isn't going to come off the wrong way, but like as a man, right? Like I want to be able to provide for my family or for my future life partner whatever if I'm not employed um, you know then like you lose a sense of identity right or like you don't feel like you're worth something Um, but if people are living longer like people are working on life extension or like people are going back to like taking care of their bodies more um, doing less substances and things like that to your point you can actually be a doctor you can be a lawyer you can be um, an engineer all in one lifetime Mm -hmm. right and What's interesting about that is I I opened up a conversation with some people that downloaded the app recently, and I told them this, a story like from Picasso where he talks about how his mom told him if you want to become a soldier you'll become a general, if you want to become a monk you'll become a pope, and he said instead I chose to be a, pa- a painter and I became Picasso, right? <laughs> and so like you are who you are, mm. right? You choose to do whatever you want to do and you will be that, but that doesn't define you. Right. You know, and that's a different way of thinking that like if you start recognizing that like you have value and it's up to you to make yourself more valuable, very similar to like calling yourself CEO and starting a company and getting people to believe in your story and like making that equity valuable. It all ties to personal brand and like being creative and like being a great artist, right? The reason why a lot of artists are starving is because they don't know how to promote themselves. Mm. You know, they don't know how to make the math work and just having like a thousand true fans that like commit fifty to a hundred dollars to your shows every year. You can live off of that. Yeah. Right. So, distribution. Distribution. Exactly. <laughs> awesome man. Awesome. Well I I love going kinda of going down that uh, that that intellectual hypothetical path um but why don't we why don't we go back because uh i want to go back to the young reuben uh you were born in california Mm -hmm. as was i uh then you moved to atlanta when you were when you were one i believe yep um and and you you kind of spent your formative years there um my question is uh i know that you're an accomplished cello Mm -hmm. uh artist and performer uh i'd love to learn 
A, how did you get into that? Mm -hmm. um, and B, like, w you know, what was your early experience with education more broadly? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think all credit is due to my parents there. Mm -hmm. So um, I went to Montessori school. There's actually a lot of interesting things about Montessori. Like, I'm not going to go on that tangent, but look up the Montessori Mafia. There's actually quite a few accomplished um, people in tech that, like, like the founders of Google, I think Bezos, I think Wikipedia founder, like, really interesting things around Montessori. Um, but anyway, my mother saw that there was violin lessons being offered. Um, and she just asked, does she teach any other instruments? And my cello, my first cello teacher, Bonnie Bull, happened to also teach cello. And I, I did that at four years old. And I started with something called the Suzuki Method. Um, and the Suzuki Method is different than traditional music schools because it touches on something that you brought up earlier about about whether you have it or you don't. Like the, the philosophy of, of Suzuki is that every child can, right? It's not like you're born with an innate music ability. If you want it, you can make it happen, which is very similar to how we are with career karma as well. Um, and it's, it follows the mother tongue method where most people learn how to speak before they learn how to read, right? So I grew up speaking Spanish. My mom's mom is Cuban. My dad speaks Spanish, Portuguese, French, um, and Chinese. Um, and their whole thing is like, the children live in America they're going to learn English, so we're going to only speak to them in Spanish. So when I went to school, I couldn't speak English. And the reason why I bring that up is because in the Suzuki method, um, which is very formative to my education, um, you learn how to play songs before you learn music theory, right? Mm. So you're listening to all the songs of book one. So when you first start learning how to play the cello, you're going to have a lesson with your teacher. And then when you're playing it on your own practicing, you'll know if it's wrong, if it's wrong, because you know how it's supposed to sound like, because it's been ingrained in your brain. Like my mom played it during the morning, during the evening when I was sleeping. So like, it's kind of like a song. You memorize the lyrics subconsciously. Mm. And then over time, I started learning not just how to memorize and play pieces. I learned the addresses, like one on A, two on A, three on A, then like one is B to a C, then like you start learning theory on the job. And the reason why this is very interesting is because um, if you think about boot camps, it's the same type of thing where musicians, most successful musicians, I would argue that we know as celebrities actually aren't tra classically trained. They don't really know music theory very well. They know how to make songs that people like, right? But then once they're in the job or they're famous, then they get vocal coaches and all these people that teach them theory, mm. right? So boot camps aren't teaching you all this deep theory stuff that you might learn from a computer science degree. Mm. They're talking to companies and be like, what do you need to get work done so you continue to make money? Mm -hmm. So the boot camps will teach to that, get you into a job to where you are productive on day one. And then when you're in the job, you're getting paid to learn. So mm. uh, same type of thing with, with um, cello. I had, there's, the cello teacher said that she would teach me as long as my mom committed to a year and I could not quit. I had to practice every day. I had to listen to the tapes every day. And there would be a lesson with her. I would practice on my own and I would have group classes every every other week or every month. 
Um, and then we had a recital every month or every quarter. So, and I had to memorize everything. So memory, audio, the belief that I can do anything, setting stretch goals that push myself every single week, um, and working with people has been core to my entire existence. Um, I started getting into competitions. Um, I went to music camps. I met really other other powerful people. Like one of my roommates is now a big celebrity from Pentatonix now. Um, and essentially, um, we, we learn things like how even if you're the best musicians, you can't always play loud, right? So you have to like learn how to be quiet in certain times, the importance of silence and things like that. And so... Um, I have a whole blog post that I wrote called Why Learning an Instrument is, is More Than Music. Um, but I also started seeing the differences in, in behavior. So while I was playing the cello, and I know I'm rambling a little bit, um, I also grew up in Atlanta, where like Atlanta's nightclub culture and hip hop is big, trap music is big. And so I can see how certain types of music affected my behavior, right? So I, I have a book called a blog post I wrote called What If Gangbangers Listen to Classical Music and I do have a caveat where like if there's mafiosos that listen to opera like blah 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 but like you can actually see a clear difference in behavior when you play certain music around certain people and it really got me into psychology so my, my mom's a psychologist so when, whenever I would perform music I really made sure that what I played was going to make a change in people Learning the notes is not, you haven't even started learning the piece once you've learned the notes. Once you've learned the notes, it's all about how to express yourself and, and differentiating like what's going to get somebody to buy your album versus somebody else's and you're playing the same piece. And so um, without being a dead horse, I'll just say like uh, the Suzuki method was a big deal for me. I got through all the books. Then I eventually got a, another teacher whose name is Wolfgang Laufer who took me on a more traditional Russian level, but also paused me and turned me into a very um, strong, like world-class level artist. Um, but yeah, I think Suzuki is, is important to think about um, because they encourage you to start young. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's something special about the, the child age uh, because you, you rise to the occasion to do things when you, when you don't even, because you don't even know it's supposed to be hard. And, <laughs> and you're doing it with other people that are doing it too that are your age. And they're playing on advanced levels and it's fun, right? And as we get older, we start getting like socialized and start getting to like start dread things and like not doing what we love and like becoming more and more unhappy. And I think that, like, if we could keep that childlike mentality, um, a lot of things will change. Um, so, yeah. And, and did you, and, and that was mainly outside of school, but when you, tell me about, like, your, your early education, uh, your, your, your relationship with the educational system, with school. Oh, like, yeah. were, were you really into hmm. school as well? That's an interesting question. So, I went to religious schools my whole life. So, I went to um, Baccarat in School. I went to Atlanta Adventist Academy and I went to Southern Adventist University. And I think, when I think about school in general, I think the biggest thing that school, the traditional education system taught me is how to start something and finish it and how to gain friends. Um, because I went to religious school, I also learned a lot of things about spirituality, which I think um, if I was going to say 
um, the biggest thing that it got me to focus on was the fact that every single one of us has a gift that we've been given and we all have purpose um, and it is our duty to sharpen those skill sets and give it to the world some mm-hmm. kind of way um, and that's been one of my biggest focuses and making sure I don't bury my talents like right now I'm running a tech company but I'm a great cellist why was I given that gift I, I still don't know mm-hmm. but I know that it's going to come into play at some point and I just keep it in the back of my mind yeah. right because like that's a universal language just like code is right um, I actually had really bad grades in um, college but during high school I had really good grades <laughs> during high school and elementary school um, I did really well but my parents always gave me supplemental work um, whether it was like worldly wise um, doing like extra math problems um, asking me to write essays like do spelling bees all these types of things so like my parents always were pushing me to other levels I mean they're both physicians um, and we come from a family that em- emphasizes the importance of education and I'll say the other thing um, that the schools that I went to focused on was the importance of legacy and building um self-sustaining um, organizations because the the schools that I went to were also funded by the church as well or partly funded by the church um, and so my relationship with the education system is good I would say when I was in college I started to rebel a lot more and I almost quit college um, I wanted to be a, the greatest musician in the world so I went to the Grammys I did all these things and um there's a crazy story there, but I'll, I'll, I'll say that story for later. But essentially, like, I, I ended up staying in school. It took me five years to finish, um, but I did. And um, I ended up with a double major in business administration and music. Um, now, I have a very strong relationship with um, the colleges because the advanced education system is actually one of the largest education systems, denominational education systems in the world. Um, and they're in a similar position to are universities that are public and private in America and, and globally um, where they need to learn how to adapt to technology. And I think because I took a non-traditional path, I'm uniquely positioned to know what works and what doesn't work. And I'm able to like leverage all these resources to put the school in a strong position to be able to adapt um, and and go from there. My, my, my schools are very focused on um, long-term healthcare which is part of the reason how I got into honor. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I went to school in Tennessee um, for college. And so, um, yeah, I wasn't the best student, I'll be honest <laughs> with you. I was, I was mostly throwing parties and, like, <laughs> enjoying life. Um, but I always did well, like, even if I didn't study. So, so this is what I'll say. During the first three years of college, I never read the book. I never... Um, like I, I always sat at the back of the class, um, and I would always I, I would always pass the exams, and I would I always do well. When I the biggest thing that I discovered during college that like was this crazy life hack was when I got into my business finance class, and I fell in love with the class. Cause and I, everybody kept talking about how most people fail the class, and I first told myself that I wasn't going to fail and I was going to get an A in it. And what I discovered is, is if you sit at the front of the class and you read the book, 
you will get an automatic seat. And, and like, and you get ready for it, you get an automatic seat. And like the people that were doing well in the class weren't born geniuses. Like all they had to do was do the work and like apply themselves. Follow the, follow, the formula. Yeah, follow the formula. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. And so after I started doing that, I just started acing all my courses <laughs> way too late. But <laughs> then like that, it goes back to the every child can thing. Like yeah. if you follow the formula, if you follow the process, you will make it. Um, there's definitely people that are naturally gifted at other things, but for the most part, the people that do well, even like being in YC and seeing the people that are the great founders that are billionaires and millionaires, like they're not all born geniuses. They're not all whiz kids. They right. just like went after it and went really hard and never quit. Like that's that's when I started changing everything. So wow. Um, so you know. You've talked before on other podcasts, whatnot, about how you you met someone in private equity uh, who got you interested in high banking. You did that for a while, then you got interested in tech. Um, what I'm most interested in is uh, it, there are a number of times in your career where you had these like these incredibly impressive outbound networking strategies, right? Mm-hmm. Where you said, "Hey, I don't know this industry, or I don't know people in this area," and you you did you went on these like crazy uh, impressive uh, cold email campaigns to, mm-hmm. to influential people or people you wanted to meet. Um, I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about that strategy, like and and you know some maybe some examples, like but how do you build a powerful network from scratch and when, when you're interested in these areas but you don't know where to start? Yeah, that's definitely been one of my biggest skill sets. Um, one of our investors from Unshackled, Manan, he says. Um, Inbound is what happens when outbound is your DNA. Um, And it's something that has stayed true throughout my life. But I don't reach out to people for personal gain for the most part. For the most part, I just love human interaction. And I love meeting people and getting to know them on a personal level. And that's what I think was very special about the Near Future event. It's like people weren't introducing themselves based off what school they went to or what their occupation was or anything like that. It was just like, hey, man, I'm from New York. Okay, awesome. Very cool. And I moved to the Bay Area. Wow, that's crazy. Like, you know, and then we were able to like have really awesome conversations. And um, because I'm that way, I think I connect to people on a friendship level versus a transactional level. Um, but if I was going to think about it from a, from a professional perspective, um, I always, if I'm trying to meet a, a person, I always try to focus on what are the things about them that aren't professional that I can build rapport with, right? So, like, I can look at your resume and see all these, like, amazing things about venture capital and blah, 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 every every accolade that you have. But I really search and dig deep for, like, some random thing, whether it's, like, fashion or a movie or a play or something. You also play the cello, right? Like, you talked about the first blog post during the pre-chat. Um... So Jeff Lewis from Founders Fund, who runs Bedrock now, my opening line to him was, it's always nice to connect to people that have roots in Canada, right? 
So what's that going to do? It's like, who the hell is this guy that has roots in Canada, right? Do I have roots in Canada? I mean, I worked at BMO Capital Markets, okay. which is a Canadian bank. Okay. It's a stretch. Yeah. <laughs> but it worked. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? It's true. It's not right. like, so like, you want to figure out, is that, and that's different. Like, like people aren't going to say something like that randomly, right? And, you know, now he and I are very good friends, right? And, there, and there's a, I always try to figure that out, right? To connect on that level. I always, I also try to figure out who do they know that they're very good friends with that aren't in their direct circle of work, line of work, right? So if it's a, um, an athlete, um, an athlete usually stays closer with their best friends that aren't in sports at all, right? So you're not going to get to them directly. You're not going to get to them through their agent, but you might be able to get to them through their friend, right? Hmm. Um, and it's not like you're trying to get to them for bad reasons. Like if you feel like you actually are going to be able to build with them in a, in a certain types of way, then like, how do you get to the front? Because the front probably has less followers. You could probably get their contact information way easier. You probably meet them out in public somewhere <laughs> and like introduce yourself in a casual way. Um, so I'll try to find out who the friend is. Um, I also try to figure out what are the causes that they care about? Like, what do they do when they're not working? Mm. Right? What are they passionate about? Like, do they, are they happy? Have they mentioned the things that they, that would make them happy? Are they working on something where there's a gap? And can I fill that gap? Right? And so when I do my research, which I do, I also memorize faces and names. So if I'm at an event like Near Future, I already know all the names of the people that I'm meeting with. And I can just strike up a personal conversation with people that has nothing to do with work, but I know we're going to be connecting on a deep level because I already did my research before. Oh, that's deep. That's yeah. deep. Okay. So, so you'll say, Hey, I, I read up on you and I, no, I wouldn't uh, even say that okay. because that would be, that would be weird. That'd be creepy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It would just be like, so how'd you hear about this? <clears throat> okay, yep. cool. Or what brought you here? Oh, cool. I, I also came here because of that. Um, you know, let's say that they're from Atlanta as well. Um, you know, you, did, are you from here? I already know they're not from there. <laughs> Right, so they're gonna say they're from Atlanta. You smoothly guide the conversation <laughs> yeah. where you yeah. want it to go. Yeah, oh, that's so like people, yeah. people love talking about themselves. Yeah, so like if I'm in an interview, if I'm in a pitch, or if I'm in anything, like I try to like make sure I've established. If if I am pitching or if I'm in an interview, I want to establish credibility that that I, I'm gonna be a fit, like for your portfolio or for your job or whatever. But for the most part, I want you talking. For the most part, like. Not in, not in the pitch. Let's let's leave the pitch thing alone. But like with the with the um, interview, like people like talking about themselves and feeling like the man, especially if they're leaders. Because as a leader, you're a lot of times taking the brunt of everything and solving everybody's problems, and nobody asks you how you feel, right? And so, making people feel good um, and letting them know that they're gonna enjoy working with you is a very big deal. So like. My, my mom and my sister, they always say I'm a, I'm a social engineer. And so, <laughs> like, like, and so like, that's, that's kind of like, I just, I just like people dynamics. And so I, I just try to, I think that those are the big things um, that I focus on. Like I'll ask dumb things like, what's your favorite color? 
What's your Myers Briggs? What's your favorite animal? Um, and I think like that's that's what's different. Like, um, what do you want to like? What's your purpose? Like, this deeper, deeper questions that like this whole system is a game, and like I guess money is a scoreboard, and credentials are are like different like prizes that you've won in this game, but like what's the point <laughs> right and yeah. so like once you're clear on what the point is then things change and for, for me I think the point is, is like like being happy and like recognizing what your purpose is and putting yourself in a position where you can continue working on your craft and like putting that out into the world and helping other people do the same thing like that's the like the ultimate thing that I want to do is like help people become better than I could ever be, um, and f- for people to recognize that I'm not teaching you how to work for companies, I'm teaching you how to work for each other. Mm. Mm. And, and speaking of like working for each other and, and building networks, uh, you talked a little bit of it in your in your post about uh, building a personal board of directors, mm-hmm. um, and I've I've actually heard mixed advice on this in terms of like whether or not to like formally ask someone to be your mentor or like on your personal board of mentors um pros and cons but like and i know this was written a a little while ago but could you tell me about your current thinking about this approach yeah um i've definitely asked people to be my mentor um i don't think there's any one of my mentors where we have a consistent schedule that we meet up on even though we did agree to meet up on one and that's neither one of our fault that's just like yeah, let's do quarterly meetings and quarterly check-ins or semi-annual check-ins or annual check-ins. Never happens like it's just that. Life. It's life just gets life. Life gets in the way, yeah. yeah. Um, I prefer the, like, not having to ask to be a mentor approach um, and just more, like, thinking, of, like, once you're clear on your why and who you want to be and what you want to do, um, recognizing the things that you are good at, but more importantly, what you aren't good at and identifying people that you connect with on a personal level that can fill those areas where you are incompetent. Incompetent is a strong word. Um, and just like try to engage in dialogue with them at least once a quarter. Um, for me, I would say the person that's been most valuable for me is um, Michael Seibel from Y Combinator. That guy puts in time like I don't know how he does it like running the entire YC every year but like when we talk we talk for like this is even before YC before we were in YC like and I've known him since 2015 or 2014 um you know he put in an hour or two into like like real tactical guidance um I think that it's important to clarify what a mentor is versus like a friend or someone that you're just checking in with that you think is a mentor. Because there's a lot of people that think that they have mentors that are actually just wasting their time and actually aren't there for you from a professional level. They might be there for you from a friend level. So like, there's a lot of people that have like great titles that I've met on this journey that I thought were my mentors hmm. and that I thought were going to be having my back in the trenches building things. But they're just friends. They're not my mentors. They're not about, they don't want to see me grow and be great. They want to see me great, be great in other ways, but like 
they don't want to be tactical on the on the project that I'm focused on, mm-hmm. right? I think a mentor is active. I think a mentor is like going to help you get unstuck when you need help immediately, right? Like I should be able to reach out to my board at any time for guidance. I should be able to, just like I reach out to my parents. If I call my mom right now, she'll drop everything to say, well, to see what's going on. I'm not going to say drop everything, but like in a timely manner, there will be a response. There'll be tactical advice and you'll be able to get unstuck. And even if it can be timely, like whenever we do talk, even if it's once a year, I'm going to walk away with gems. And it wasn't just like a catch up session talking about a bunch of random things that are super important positive psychological things for me, but it's not mentorship. Mm, mm. You see what I'm saying? That's my perspective. Uh, I, so so just just to be clear, so it, it sounds like um, you're saying that some people are kind of more willing to be on call and, and to help you through real problems. Um, but is it, is it more like they they're willing to, to spend the time or is it, or or are you 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 kind of implying like they don't necessarily want to see you successful? It, just help help me di- yeah. separate the difference. So it's less about being on call. Mm-hmm. It's more about um, wanting to help you with your current project that you're focused on. I think like when I've when people reach out to me or talk to me about mentorship, they optimize for people that have a great title uh-huh. that. They want to have them become their mentor. Right. And so they'll have the coffee meeting. They'll send the email. They successfully meet up. <laughs> they might do a lot of work together. And then they'll be like, yep, that's my mentor. But like that person's not really doing anything for you. Right. Like that person is a great title. It's a great person that you know. But they're not really like doing anything like they'll respond to anything that you say quickly in a timely matter they'll show up to all your events they'll be there at your personal and professional shows but they're not going to be in the trenches with you to help you build your company or with you actively manage your career right and a mentor is active there and i think that there's a difference between a mentor and a coach mm-hmm. like a mentor is, is more high level. A coach is tactical. Uh-huh. Right? A mentor is going to be like the guy that teaches the group class at the jiu-jitsu gym. Mm-hmm. And the coach could be that same teacher that's like working with you one-on-one on the mat. Right. 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 Or it could be like a defensive coach or offensive coach just like working on one aspect of your game. Uh, right. Yeah. And I think when I'm thinking about a, a personal board of correct directors, I want people that fill in different specific aspects that I don't have. Yeah. That get me to another level, which is very similar to boot camps. I want like that targeted, focused, accelerated learning directly from someone that has that experience. That's why I'm reaching out to you. If not, we can be friends. But like, you're not my mentor. Yeah. Which is fine. Like, you don't have to be my mentor. Sure, sure. Like, sure. you're going to give me other types of advice. That doesn't mean you don't, you, 
mentors aren't the only people that give you advice. You can get advice from anybody. Right, right. But a mentor is different, in my opinion. No, I, I like that. Because you know? I, I definitely, first off, I, I've, you know, I, I feel like I have a number of mentors, but I haven't asked anyone to be my mentor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think I've always just found it to be a little awkward. And it's, it's nice to hear that you've, you've, you've come to that as well, that conclusion as well. Um, but, but yeah, there's definitely, I like this idea of, of, okay, there's these certain folks in my network, maybe they have, maybe they don't have the right title. They, they're not like people everyone knows, but they're people that I can go to and they will listen really thoughtfully on a moment's notice, give me, you know, really helpful or, uh, advice on a particular skill set or a particular topic that I, I know they're expert at um, and and getting a constellation of these types of folks in your network such that you can use the right ones when you need them and you can get different opinions on, on a particular topic. Yeah, the, um, the way my thinking has evolved on mentorship is, and I think it's something that we hit on on CareerCom, was like before I used to optimize for people that were like these pie in the sky, really famous and successful people. Right. Now I really focus on peer level mentorship ah. and people that are one step above you. And so in career karma, when you get matched to a training program, we put you into a circle of people that are just like you doing the same thing. So if I'm another mom or another dad learning how to code, there are going to be certain problems that we are experiencing that other groups of people don't experience. And even if we're at the same level, you might be able to teach me things to get unblocked, right? And even more so, the people that just got one step above me and passed the level that I'm trying to pass, they probably have the cheat codes for me to get there, right? And they're excited to share. And they're excited to share. Yeah. Because they're always they're also in process to get to the next level and the person on the next level is willing to help them. So we've been able to create this like nice sequence of job chains throughout the system where we've productized that because this is already what happens in life. But it's, it's, it hasn't been guided. So we try to make it a game. We try to make it fun, which goes back to like rising to the occasion to do things that are hard when you don't even know that it's hard. Because we've broken down this huge mountain into small, tiny steps, right? So, wow. Yeah. Wow. Peer level board of directors. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Um, let, let's jump to the, the personal philosophy section. Um, you've already talked about like one thing you believe that other people don't. Um, in our first meeting, uh, I, I think I mentioned my kids and you told me you want how many kids? Five. Five kids. Where does that come from? <laughs> um, comes from a few things. I think that um, I'm fascinated with Japan. And I think that um, if you think about companies that have lasted for over 100 years, the majority of them are in Japan. And the majority of those companies are family owned. Um, and thinking about my upbringing, there was a big emphasis on family. Um, and a lot of, if you think about the, the number of companies that are on the Fortune 500, you would argue that over the next, I don't know, 50 years, a lot of them aren't going to still be there, right? That's sure. something that Tony Shea was talking about at the near future event that we were at. Um, and Tony Shea also brought up, from Zappos for the people that don't know, um, is that cities have been able to stand the test of time, right? And um, when I think about career come, I want to build something that's timeless, right? And so um, the reason why I want to have a big family is just because I think a lot about legacy. And I think that, um, you know, 
if you look at history, because I'm also a student of history, people also like to talk about, well, this is funny. I say, my mom would laugh if she heard me say I'm a student of history. Because <laughs> in college, I hated history, <laughs> like with a passion. Yeah. But now, you know, I hear all these people talking about the fourth industrial revolution, but nobody studies the first, second, and third. Right. <laughs> and it's like, know your history be forced to repeat it. Sometimes it's good to repeat history. Sometimes it's bad. And so, like, I think a lot about how families historically were big. Right. My mom, my mom's mom, it's like family, like 13 something kids. Same thing with the grandfather, a bunch of kids. Um, and my dad, who grew up on a farm in Blakely, Georgia, same thing. Huge family, um, I believe, over over 10 kids as well and like if you look at a lot of Caribbean families same type of thing um, and you can be like well why well they have more time um, I don't know like I don't know all the reasons yet I'm still thinking about it mm. but why was it more popular to have kids back then than today I would argue a big reasons why a lot of people don't have a lot of kids today is because they don't have enough money to afford kids right um, if you want to have five kids you gotta have five kids money right but if you want to have those kids, have why can't you have the kids, right? Um, honestly, it's an arbitrary number that I picked that is more than three. Um, <laughs> and I think five sounds better than four. <laughs> <laughs> and um, like as a musician, it's like the pentatonic scale. <laughs> and yeah, I think I about love legacy. It. Yeah. I love it. A, bount- a bountiful life ahead. And uh, that's, that's really interesting. Because I, I have three kids, and uh, I, I we're 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 very happy with three kids. Um, but uh, it's even with three kids, we feel like a huge family mm-hmm. in, in this you know in this time, and especially in this city, um, it, it's very rare to meet a family with three kids or or four. Uh, there's one family we know that's with four and, and five. I don't think we've met one, but um, but yeah, I, I I do agree because I think a lot of people. I, I can't tell you how many people I run into in, in the tech industry that they they want to have kids, but they don't because they're like, well, we're too busy right now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they're, they're really expensive. We love our lifestyle. Um, and and they just put it off and put it off and then they, they don't have them or, mm-hmm. or they have them really late and then they have challenges. I mean, and, you know, and a lot of people have challenges um, and there's, there's no shame in that either. But... Um, but it is interesting. It, it, it just, it caught my attention because it's, it's rare to see, hear someone who says like, yeah, I want a big family anymore. And yeah. it's, it's a little sad. I think that that's the case, but, um, yeah, but glad there are folks like you and me out there who we'll are see if more interested. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. One, one step at a time. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yes, about philosophy on life. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. Please. Um, I mean, that's a very deeper question. I'll say, rather than going into that deep question, I'll just say that, like, um, something I think a lot about is leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, not just because, like, I'm part of leadership with co-founders that are also leaders, but also because in Career Karma, we, we raise, um, we have, we raise, uh, we have squad leaders. So in these small circles inside of the app, that are these accountability systems that help people start and finish something. Um, there's leaders that rise to the occasion. But a quote that I've been thinking about a lot is um, is how a leader is best when people barely know that he exists. Not so good when people obey and acclaim him and worse when they despise him. 
Um, and I love that quote because a lot of people, they're like, I'm the boss. Like, I, I, I came here to be the boss. And then like a lot of times when I start curriculum, I'm like, what does CEO mean? They're like, oh, chief executive officer. I say, no, it means create every opportunity, right? So I'm here to download my brain into you and like essentially build you up and get and push me out of a job to where I'm doing something else, right? I don't say that about career karma, but just in general, like if I'm managing someone, like I want to get them to become the new leader. And I've been thinking a lot about like um, positional leadership. And so um, I'll just say like around leadership, there's um, a more of a, I think that there's more power when we, when we have less ego and we figure out how to help each other win and stop playing a lot of these like zero sum games. Um, and I think that decentralization matters, um, but catalysts are still important. And so I would say we need more catalysts in the world um, versus bosses. Wow. Wow. Awesome, man. I, well, I think that's a great place to, to kind of end it. That that was the exact question I was going to ask you. Um, well, where can people find you, your podcast, Career Karma? Give us give us how everyone can reach you. Yeah, so um, my social media is all my name. So it's Ruben Harris, R-U-B-E-N-H-A-R-R-I-S. Um, subscribe to our podcast, which is breakingintostartups.com. Um, and it's on all the platforms. Um, if you want to get a high-paying job in tech in less than 12 months, just download the Career Karma app and send me a message. Um, you can visit the careerkarma.com um, or you can send me a personal email at ruben at careerkarma.com um, and make sure that when you do tweet, if you do tweet, that you tweet me, um, Joe, and the Epic Human Podcast. Um, <laughs> and yeah, thank you for having me. Awesome, man. Thanks yeah. for being here. Yeah. Appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Epic Human Podcast. Today's episode was brought to you by SBZ Legal, a boutique law firm based in Oakland, California, that specializes in working with early stage startups. Having met all of the individuals at this organization, I can attest that they not only talk the talk, they really walk the walk. And you couldn't ask for a more down-to-earth, mission-oriented group of people. Highly recommend. Uh, and if you enjoyed today's episode, uh, please follow us on Twitter or Facebook at Epic Human Pod. Uh, and if you like today's episode, I would ask that you like and subscribe. And if you love today's episode, I would ask that you give us a rating and a review, good or bad. It really just helps to make the podcast better. So until next time, we will look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the Epic Human Podcast.